the 19th century was marked by revolution. And it carried on into the 20th century. And these revolutions became bloody and brutal revolutions. There was an ideology, a political ideology, that was pushing a revolution. And the, re the revolution said that there were the bourgeoisie, the owner class, the oppressors, and there were the proletariats, the working class, the oppressed. And what it did, this, this movement that, that produced so many revolutions, it said to the working class, the proletariat, if you throw off your shackles of oppression, join together, and fought against the oppressor, you would experience true freedom. You would experience financial freedom. You would experience what it is like to be free from the oppressors of the bourgeoisie class. And they convinced many proletariats to throw off these shackles of oppression and start a revolution. We saw this happen in France. It actually started in France. And then it moved out. And it took hold in Russia and China, Cambodia, Laos, North Korea. And one thing that all of these revolutions had in common is what they promised was freedom. What it delivered was oppression. What it promised was freedom. What it delivered was oppression. So in Russia, it became illegal for peasant farmers to trade eggs for meat. Think about that for a second. A peasant farmer starving. Illegal to trade eggs for meat. The leaders of the revolution promised freedom but in the end, became the oppressors. That's what the false teachers want to do to us as well. They want to promise us freedom. But in the end, is destruction and slavery. That's what Peter's going to get into us, get in for us today in 2 Peter. So turn with me, if you will, to 2 Peter. 2 Peter 2, we'll start off with verse 10b, if you remember last week, we kind of talked through why we separate that verse 10 out. 10b all the way through 22. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blast me of the glorious ones. Remember last week, if we, if we remember 2 Peter, we started off with theological truths. If you want to be able to identify the lie, you have to know the truth. That's the best way to identify the lie. It's not to, not to know all of the lies, but to know the truth. Because the lies will constantly come, and they'll constantly be shifted, and they'll constantly be changed. So we have to know the truth. So he starts off with truth, with theological truth that we need to be grounded in. And so that's what chapter 1 is all about. Chapter 2, he starts getting into who the false prophets are. And that's what we started off with last week, where who are these false prophets? So that's where we're picking up. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, through great, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, 
born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions, while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. Those who are barely escaping from those who live in, in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after, they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it turned back from holy commandment delivered to them. When what the true proverb says has happened to them, the dog returns to its lawn, own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So one of the things I like to do is, as, as I read through Scripture, I like to highlight what I think the tone is. And I think that's important as we read through. So you can kind of hear, as I read through it, you can kind of hear the tone coming out, right? There are times when the tone is well toned down. And there are times when you can read into Peter's voice that this is something he is passionate about. I think this is something he is passionate about. You can hear it in the voice. You can hear it as you read through. This is something that he is absolutely passionate about because it is so important. And you see people that are false teachers that are turning believers away from the truth and how absolutely devastating and destructive that can be. So we hear that. But before we dig in, and actually I should rephrase that, what I want to do is start off a little bit different than usual. We're going to start off with verse 20 today. And I want to get something, I don't want to just say get it out of the way, but there is uh, there's a little bit of controversy around this last section here. And so I want to kind of talk through it, and then we'll start digging in a little bit more. So this last section, verse 20 going on through 22, uh, it's kind of a, a vague description of what's happening here. And because it's a little vague, some people use it for different purposes within theology. And there are a lot of who I think are brilliant theologians that kind of disagree here. So I want to walk us through some of the disagreement, and then we'll get back and, and look into some application. So uh, the first question with this in verse 20, for, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, the first question we have to ask ourselves in verse 20 is, who are the they? Who are the day that this is referring to? So some people, very few theologians today, but some would say that this they refers back to those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. All right, so that would be the first kind of stance here is that the they refers back to those who are barely escaping. I don't think that's it. I'm just, we're, 
if we go down that road, then we've got to do a whole lot of other explanations. I'm just going to say I don't think that's who, it, who it's explaining. The they is referring to the false teachers. If we read it in the context, all of chapter 2 is about the false teachers. There's a little bit here and there about the people that the false teachers are trying to pull away. But for the most part, it's all about the false teachers. So the they here is referring back to the false teachers. Now, even within that, there then becomes a discussion. And that's the part of the discussion I want to look at for just a little bit. Let's go to the next slide here. Uh, so there's kind of three different viewpoints here. Uh, we'll walk through each one. So the first viewpoint is that the they, what's going on here is that these, this is a reference to false teachers who were believers who have now lost their salvation. That's one of the major viewpoints from this. And the reason why they get this is because when you look at this, for if after they, they referring to the false teachers, have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So what this viewpoint would say is they'd look at this and they'd say, well, the they is definitely talking about the, the false teachers and the escaping the defilements of the world and the knowledge of, remember, we've been making kind of a big deal out of this word knowledge in 2 Peter. It's the term epigonosco, and it means like an intimate or relational knowledge of. So for a, for a Second Temple Jew, you didn't have knowledge of something until you actually started living it out. It wasn't just that you had information of, it's that you were actually living this thing out. So they would look at this and they would say, well, that's definitely salvation language. They'd say this is salvation language, but then when you look down to verse 21, for it would have better, been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment. They'd say, well, that sounds like it's language that means that they were saved because we've got salvation language. Now it's language that says that they're no longer saved. And that's the argument they would go on. Now I want to say this once again. This is pretty vague language. So if you're going to build a theology, like you can lose your salvation or you can keep your salvation, this isn't the, a great text to turn to. There are other texts to build a theology off of. Not exactly this one. So, that's the first one. That's the reason why. They say it, it sounds like salvation language to me, and that also sounds like they've lost their salvation to me. The second one is that this is a reference to false teachers who are believers, have returned to their previous lifestyle, but have not lost their salvation. So what they would do again is they'd look at escape the defilements, and they'd look at that term knowledge, and they'd say once again, this is salvation language. However, they don't think that the rest of the verses sound like it's lost salvation language. So they would say, you know, uh, uh, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. This term overcome here is a term, it's a war term, and it means to be defeated by an enemy. So they would say, Okay, so they are entangled in them again, so they've gone back to their sin, they've been overcome, they've been defeated by their sin, so the last state has become worse for them than the first. This viewpoint would say, well, that doesn't mean that they've lost their salvation. What that means is in this life, they're going to feel the guilt and the shame of knowing the way of righteousness, but not living the way of righteousness. That's where this viewpoint would go from. So the whole idea that that their state now is worse 
than their state before. What they would argue is that before they came to know Christ, they didn't know right from wrong. They were lost in their sin, but they didn't even know that they were lost in their sin. But now they actually know sin. They can call it by its name. And so now that that they've been overcome by their sin again, they're going to live with a bunch of guilt. They're going to live with a bunch of shame. And it's going to be worse for them than if they had known that before. So that's the second viewpoint. The third viewpoint, by the way, I like to kind of keep this a little bit open-ended. So I might let you know which one I lean towards. But uh, anytime, I like to emphasize, once again, anytime we come into a piece of scripture that has some vague language, let's not build our theology around it. Let's turn towards something a little bit more exact. So, full disclaimer, I do believe in eternal security. Our church believes in eternal security, that once you're saved, you can't lose your salvation. However, there are some really good verses that that I think more accurately describes what happens. And it's not using vague language. So I would turn towards uh, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. To me, that's language that's very precise. But anyways, we'll continue on. The third one is this is false teachers who knew the truth but never believed. So what they, what this one would do, and once again, I know brilliant theologians that, that would fall into either one of these categories. Uh, I'm not a brilliant theologian. Uh, so I'll let you kind of decide what you want to do with this. But this one would argue that these are false teachers that knew the truth, but they never actually believed. So they were never actually saved to begin with. So what this viewpoint would do is they'd take this, uh, that they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord, and they say they would say that this is not salvation language. Notice what we're doing here. Each theologian that's reading this is bringing a theology to the table because it is vague language. And how do you interpret the Bible? With the Bible. And so you got, in order to make sense of this, you've got to bring some other scripture to it. So they would say that this is not salvation language. They would say that's what's happened here, is that they have escaped the defilements of the world. That means that they know how to live righteously through the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Meaning that they know how to live a righteous life. They know how to not commit adultery. They know how to not lie, steal, cheat, 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 and steal. So that's how they've escaped it. They never actually put their faith and trust in God. This argument would also look at the very end here. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. J. Vernon McGee would look at this, if you're familiar with him. He would look at this, and this is what he likes to emphasize right here. That this is a description of the false teacher. And if you'll notice, it doesn't say the dog has been changed, his nature has been changed, or the sow, the nature has been changed. What he's saying here is that the dog and the sow were never changed in the first place. So he would say that's what the false believer is. has never changed. The false believer was always the dog and the sow. The false believer learned to go clean himself up, to look like a Christian, but never actually put their faith and trust in Christ. And because of that, at some point, 
turned back towards the mud, turned back to wallow in the mire. And so that's what the third category would be. Well, I'm going to let you make up your mind on that one. Uh, the last few weeks I've been asking you for a discussion on your way home. Maybe this would be a good discussion for you to have later on at home or with someone else. You know, if, uh, give, give your friend a call and say, hey, let's talk through this. There's these three points. What do you think it is? I think the point of it all, the point that we can get to here, is that not all who call themselves Christian actually are. Not all who call themselves Christian actually are. Some people have learned how to walk the walk. Some people have learned how to talk the talk. And they've done it in order to manipulate. That's the point Peter's trying to get at. And that's why he closes it out with verse 22. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog who returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. These people have cleaned themselves up, have made themselves look really nice, but in the end, they will return the sin in which they are enslaved. Now, does that mean every Christian who's ever gone to wallow in the mire is unsaved? I would say no. There are the prodigal Christians. The Christians who truly believe. The Christians that truly put their faith and trust in Christ. And yet, has also returned to wallow in the mire. At some point though, they, if they are a true Christian, I believe, will return. So what this uh, passage, I think, teaches is that not all who fall away are not Christians. But not everyone who is a Christian is a Christian as well. We need to use discernment. We can't just follow anyone willy-nilly. All right, so there we go. That is the controversial section. We're going to get back to, uh, to, the, to 10b. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. All right, so once again, he's addressing these false teachers, right? All the way back in 10b, he's addressing these false teachers, and he calls them, he says that they're bold and willful. And what this means is that they are arrogant and defiant. These false teachers are arrogant and defiant against authority, and basically what they're saying is no one will tell me what to do. They don't want to submit to authority. They shake their fist at authority. Not just God's authority, but authority in general. They want to be the supreme authority. That's what the false teacher's ideas are. And if you're questioning whether or not you fall in line with this, ask yourself, do I constantly shake my fist at authority? Or am I willing to submit to authority? The false teachers are bold and willful. They are defiant against authority. Their heart says, no one will tell me what to do. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. The glorious ones here, it's kind of this really vague uh, description of angels that have fallen. Okay, So he's actually borrowing a little bit from Jude here. and uh, Or maybe Jude borrowed a little bit from him. Uh, there's a little bit of a debate about that. 
But, uh, but the language is the same, so he's describing angels who, when Satan fell, followed along with Satan. Notice how he calls them glorious ones. That's interesting, huh? So anyways, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So what he's getting at here is that they're willing to speak about things they have no clue about. They're willing to form an opinion about which they don't have the slightest clue. But not only are they willing to form an opinion, they're going to argue with you to agree with their opinion. So they're, they're out there, they're bold, and they're arrogant, they're willful, and they've formed opinion about something they have no clue about. So when the angels fell, we, we know the angels fell, but we don't know a whole lot about it. So are we going to make a whole bunch of arguments and judgments? Notice that he says they blaspheme the glorious ones. They're slandering those angels that fell. But the whole point, we can get caught up in the angels that fell. The whole point is they're making judgments about which they don't have a clue. And they want to convince you to do the same, to join them in the same. They're not willing to say, I don't know. They're not willing to say, hey, God's ways are above my ways, and I just am not sure about it. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. And what he's getting at here is he describes them as irrational animals. And he's going to give us two descriptions of those irrational animals. Notice, though, that the first part is irrational animals. We're supposed to have rational thoughts. We're supposed to use our brains. We're supposed to think through things. We were made in the image of God. We don't just operate on instinct. The false teachers are operating like irrational animals. And then he goes on to describe the irrational animals are creatures of instinct. They're letting their instincts drive them. Question is, do you let your instincts drive you? Or do you control your instincts? Sometimes our instinct is to pull away from others. Some of us here have been hurt, we've been incredibly hurt by someone else. And one of our instincts, like an animal who's been injured, one of those instincts is to pull away. I'm never going to let anyone hurt me again. There's no way I'll ever let anyone know who I really am. I'll never open my heart again. That's an instinctual protective thing. But what he's saying is we're, we're more intelligent. We can control the instincts and if we don't learn to control our instincts, our instincts will control us. So they're creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed. And what he's getting at here is, in the animal world, there's a food chain. It's predator and prey. It's kill or be killed, right? And the false teachers have fallen along with this because they're creatures of instinct, because they've let their instincts control them, they've come to a point where they're kill or be killed. 
And really what it boils down to is other people exist for me to use. And the second they are no longer useful to me, it's time to move on. There was a very uh, infamous divorce that was announced this week. Uh, A couple that are very prominent in U.S. culture. And what's interesting about this divorce is they had been married for 27 years. I was reading an article about it that uh, a sociologist was looking into it, and they, they said that there's this new trend that's happening, and it's called gray divorce. Gray divorce because it's happening among older people. And the gray divorce rate is skyrocketing right now. And people are asking, why? What's going on here? And the answer is there is this worldview that sees other people as useful and non-useful. Do you benefit me or not? And Bill Gates, in his announcement of the divorce, made it fairly clear that they weren't growing each other anymore. That the whole purpose for marriage is that you are there to grow me. And when you don't grow me anymore, it's time to move on to someone else that will grow me. Now, that's a statement we can unpack. First of all, grow you how? Grow you financially? Grow you in knowledge? Mature you in God's grace? Because if it's to mature you in God's grace, then the only way to mature in God's grace is to stay committed even when they don't seem useful anymore. But that's the worldview that we're running up against. And that's the worldview that is starting to take over the culture. That people are there to be used. When they're no longer useful, it's time to get rid of them and move on to someone else that is useful. God uses your spouse to grow you in his grace. And even when they don't seem useful, even when they seem like a big pain, God's using them to grow you. I'm the big pain in our marriage, just so you guys know. I'll be clear on that. <laughs> so, they're, they're into this, the caught and destroyed, kill or be killed, use, use others, blaspheming about matters of which they are arrogant. And here we go again, just this idea that they're talking about, they're opinionated about things that they have no clue. They're not willing to bask in the mystery of God. They will make an opinion and they will, they will foist their opinion upon you. Will also be destroyed in their destruction. That's interesting how he says that, right? So the false teacher wants to come in and part of what they're going to do is destroy. False teachers destroy the church. False teachers destroy community. Because it's all about using other people, false teachers destroy things. But in their destruction, they will also be destroyed. So they will be destroyed in their destruction. As they come in to destroy things, they are also destroying themselves. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. And I love that too, that they're suffering wrong. So 
the wage, what they're earning with their wrongdoing as they are doing wrong against you. And it's so important for us to hold on to because what's easy to do is harden our heart. When we are confronted with the false teacher, when we are confronted with the people with the worldview of use you and they've used us, then we harden our heart and we want to shake our fist at them. But what they're actually earning is suffering. As they do wrong against us, they are earning their own suffering. But conversely, when we do the same thing, we are earning our own suffering. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. And what he's getting at there is that they, uh, they were willing to do things that not even the Greeks were willing to do in the middle of the day. And a big part of that was getting drunk. The Greeks even thought that getting drunk in the middle of the day was not acceptable. The false teacher said, hey, it's totally fine. Go ahead and get drunk in the middle of the day. So they took pleasure in re- to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, re- reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. And reveling in their deceptions, you could translate that as celebrating in their hypocrisy. Celebrating in their hypocrisy while they feast with you. In, in the ancient church, uh, there were what, what we would call potlucks. There were several potlucks. You know, people would bring in a lot of food, and they would often take communion together during these potlucks, during these feasts. They would call them love feasts. And what would happen is these false teachers would celebrate their hypocrisy, their deceptions, even in the midst of these feasts. They would come into the feast, they would smile, they would be charismatic and winsome, knowing that they were just there to use the other people that were there, and they would celebrate the fact that that's why they were there, to use other people. But I think hypocrisy is acceptable today. Are you the same person with your parents as you are on your social media account? Are you the same person with your friends at church as you are with your school friends, with your work friends? It has become an acceptable thing to do, to be different people around different people. And it's not okay. God has called us to be authentic. That doesn't mean to be fake. We don't have to fake it around other people. But he has called us to be authentic. These were celebrating their hypocrisy. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. Eyes full of adultery means that they were always looking. They were always on the lookout. They were constantly looking for the next name the sin. The next girl to seduce. They were constantly looking for the next thing to steal. They never stopped And he's coupled that with insatiable for sin. Meaning the sin 
would never satisfy them. And that's the, one of the traps of sin, is we think it will satisfy. If only I can, then I'll be satisfied. If only I can get enough money, then I will be satisfied. If only I can become a millionaire, if only I can live comfortably, then I will be satisfied. But sin never satisfies. The French philosopher Rousseau developed a whole philosophy that has influenced our culture more than we can ever tell. But it all started off with this woman that he thought was perfect. And he so desperately wanted her. And he pursued her. And finally when he got her, he saw one blemish. And he left. And as he was traveling to another city, he was meditating on her and decided that he hated her. And it was from his hate of this woman that he thought was perfect at one point in his life that he developed an entire philosophy that society is bad and humans are good. We are born with a good nature. It is society that corrupts us. And so what we need to do is just be true to ourselves. How twisted did that come? All from this one girl that he wanted that ended up leaving him feeling sick inside. And I use that as an example because I think it's so true of what sin actually does. We think sin will fulfill. We think it's going to fill up our heart and make us feel so good. But in the end, it really just torments our soul. Sin will never satisfy, but they are insatiable for sin. And they're insatiable because once they've got the one sin, then they think the next one is going to be the one that will fulfill. My grandmother was married seven times. Seven different times. And each time, this will be the one that finally fulfills me. This will be the one that finally makes me happy. And it wasn't very long until that one disappointed as well. That's what sin does to us. It never satisfies so insatiable for sin, they entice unsteady souls. This word entice means to bait, a trap. So they are tra setting out traps. They're setting out bait. It actually literally means to bait a hook. They are baiting a hook for unsteady souls. Unsteady souls are people who are looking for something that will satisfy them. They're looking for something to fulfill them. They may be Christians but they haven't fully submitted to God and they're not letting God fulfill them. So they're looking for that other thing that might fulfill them. And these are the people that the false teachers are looking for. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. The, the term accursed children is simply a, a Jewish idiom that means that God is going to judge them. God's judgment is upon them. 
So they are, they are enticing unstable souls, they are tra- their hearts are trained for greed, and God's judgment is upon them. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, they have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with, hu- with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So this is found, this is a story found in Numbers 22. And what, if you're not familiar with it, what's happened here is the Israelites have fled Egypt. They're in their years of wandering the desert. And the king of Moab sees them and knows that they are a strong, powerful nation, and he trembles. Well, Balaam was a prophet of God. And the king of Moab noticed that whoever he cursed, the curse would come true. Whoever he blessed, the blessing would come true. So the king of Moab decided, I'm going to hire this guy out. What he doesn't understand is that Balaam is not acting as God, but is revealing what God has already decided. It's an important difference. But he thinks that he might be able to change things, so he, he wants to hire Balaam out to curse Israel. He hires him out, and Balaam says, No. Says, well, name your price, and I'll double it. So Balaam says, okay. God comes to a vision and says, no, you can't do that. So Balaam goes back to the king and says, no, I can't do that. And the king says, just wait. I'll pile even more money on your doorstep. So he finally convinces, okay, I I can retire really well at this point. I'm going to go ahead and do it. And he starts traveling, and his donkey, he's on the donkey, and this donkey stops. And the, the text says that he sees the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord is a reference to Jesus Christ pre-incarnate. So he sees the Old Testament Jesus Christ sitting in front of him with two swords, and the donkey's not going to move. So what does Balaam do? He hits him. Come on, you stupid donkey. Get going! Why are you acting like a donkey? Move! The donkey's not going to move. So finally, after this occurs for a little while, Jesus enables the donkey to turn its head and say, Look, God is standing in front of me. Now the whole point of this is if a stupid donkey can get it, then we should get it too. If a stupid donkey can get it, then we should be able to get it. That's the whole point Peter is driving at there. And he goes on with the description. These are waterless springs and mist being driven by a storm. And what this is really getting across is that uh, in the ancient world, water was very important. If you were traveling with your family, you were on the brink of dehydration, and some stranger came across and said, hey, I know where there's a spring, it's just two miles that way. So you take the chance. You're going to go to the spring. You get to the spring and it's waterless. Your entire family dies. That's the point that's coming across. Pretty dramatic. It hits the point well. And mist driven by a storm. The mist driven by the storm also makes it very same point. We know here in flag when we see the thunder clouds building and then they just pass by. What a bummer that is. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved 
That's a reference. Uh, it's a Greek reference to hell. So that would be another argument that point number three would make that they knew the truth but never believed because the, the gloom of utter darkness is being reserved for them. God's judgment is being reserved for them. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh. So how do they entice? And this word entice, once again, means to bait the hook. How do they entice? They entice by speaking loud boasts of folly. Loud boasts of foolishness. They don't even know what they're talking about. But they're going to talk about it loudly. They're going to make you feel stupid for disagreeing. And not just by loud boasts of folly, but by sensual passions of the flesh. This, uh, the term sensual here means appealing to the senses. Passions means cravings. So you could even say that they entice by appealing to the cravings of the flesh. The cravings of our flesh. Now this is distinctly marked by uh, enticing to sexual promiscuity, but it's more than just that. It is that, but it's also more. Whatever your flesh desires, that's what they're appealing to. Do you desire comfort? Do you desire indulgence? Maybe it is the best ice cream you've ever had. That's what they are appealing to. They're appealing to your Sensory cravings. Those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. So they're appealing, once again, to those who are unsteady souls who are barely escaping. These are also people that are not rooted in Scripture. We need to be rooted in Scripture if we, wanna, if we want to avoid the false prophets. They promise them freedom. They themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So just like the communist revolutions, they promise freedom. That's the big promise. Give in to your desire and experience true freedom. That's what they're promising. Give in to whatever you want, whatever your mind can create. Give in to it, and then you will experience true freedom. The only problem is you're not going to experience freedom. It is that thing that you give into that you will actually be enslaved to. So there was a famous actress who recently... I guess not recently, a long time ago she came out as uh, as gay. And I think about this. They promised them freedom. You don't really, you're not really who you're being. If you really want to be who you, who you if you really want to experience freedom, you'll, you'll come out with this and you'll submit to this desire. That's the message she heard. And so that's what she did. And she became a slave to that. But she didn't stop there. At another point 
it turned out that she had to be true to herself, and she wasn't really a girl. She was a man. And she came out and she said that she had finally experienced true freedom. Problem is, she's really just enslaved herself to another ideology. Because sin never fulfills. You will always be searching for the next place. You will always be searching for another place for freedom. If you want true freedom, if you want to experience true freedom, it's by God's grace. And you come to this place where you say, God, I've messed up. I've shaken my fist at you. I've looked for fulfillment in everything else but you. But I trust that you died on the cross for me. You paid the price for my rebellion. And it is in that moment when you put your faith and trust in Christ that you can experience true freedom. Have you done that yet? Have you put your trust in Christ? Sin will never fulfill you. It will only enslave you. The only way to be truly free is to put your faith and trust in Christ. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have loved us, that you have loved us so much that you didn't leave us to our rebellion, that you didn't leave us to our sin, but you came and you died for us so that we could experience true freedom in you. We pray for anyone who hasn't made that decision, who hasn't put their faith and trust in you, that they would do it. And then they would go talk with other believers about it and grow in the grace you have lavished upon. In your name we pray.